and Mark is right. When I got into uh, military history and academic, as an academic, at the time I decided that's what I wanted to do, I didn't even know any military historians in academia. And in point of fact, there weren't very many in the 50s, late 50s. What I'm going to talk about today is give sort of a brief overview of the period of the 20s and 30s in the Army, the interwar, World War I, World War II period. As Mark said, I wrote an institutional social history of the Army. It originally started out to be a 100,000-word book, at least that's what the publisher thought and I thought, and eventually it turned into 400,000 words, which didn't amuse the publisher that much, and took a good deal longer. I thought I could do it in three or four years, and it wound up being 30. And the second volume picks up the Army in 1898 and carries it up to Pearl Harbor and the regular Army. Now, I'm going to be talking about the 20s and 30s, but I'm also going to talk just briefly about the earlier period, 1900 to uh, 1919, 1920, because, you know, I mean, face it. There's no greater buzzword in military circles these days than transformation. Well, during that period, the Army was engaged in the most important, significant transformation of its history. In effect, the groundwork of the modern Army was laid in the Root Administration as Secretary of War in the early 1900s. In this regard, Root first came up with a mission statement. This is years before people ran around doing this professionally, but Root came up with one. The purpose of the Army in peacetime is to prepare for war. That's great. Then he pointed out the first thing he did was he dealt with the institutional framework of the Army. Without going into any great detail, the Commander-in-Chief's the President. The Secretary of War is his representative. There was a commanding general of the Army, but that man controlled only the line of the Army. The logistical branches were controlled by individual chiefs, and they didn't report to the commanding general. There was no coordination in that regard or control. They reported to the Secretary of War. And so these people were looking after their special interests. There was one guy who had a general view, and that was the adjutant general, because all the papers were coming through his office. And at any given time, the adjutant general was the most important man in the Army. Root came up with an interesting concept of having a chief of staff and a general staff in order to coordinate and really plan ahead, plan for the future, and control the Army. And the chief of staff would be the chief of staff to the president, theoretically. He would report to the Secretary of War and so on. But he was supposed to be on top of the War Department pile, which was in those days rather small, but still. He was the one who began the general staff system. The second thing he did, if you're going to prepare for war, you have to have an effective educational system, advanced officer education system. He realized this, and there were schools that had been kicking around, some of them since 1820 or 30, branch schools, what have you, and of course Leavenworth had been kicking around since the 80s. But he set up a system, founded the Army War College, and set up a progressive system to educate officers, and it was assumed and mandatory that officers be educated, and they go through this. Finally, he attempted to systematize the militia system. The militia system, everybody 18 to 45, male, able-bodied male, was obligated for military service, furnish your own weapons, and hopefully show up for musters, which most of them didn't, beginning in 1792 with the Militia Act. He attempted to standardize the militias, and give an element, increasingly so as we know now, 
uh, particularly with the McNamara things, reforms, if you want to call them that, and I think they were, standardize the state militias and give them a, a federal subsidy, but in turn they would have to set up a system that was similar. So the Pennsylvania militia or National Guard is like the Ohio and so on. Well, this was the great transformation. And, of course, and this may sound pretty close to home, it took part during one of the greatest counterinsurgency, still, I think, the greatest counterinsurgency campaigns the Army has ever been engaged in, namely the Philippines. We fought a counterinsurgency war in the Philippines from 1899 to around 1913. The insurrection, as it was called, against the Philippine nationalists ended in 1902, and it ended the way these things have to end. The president said, as of July 4, 1902, the war's over. Anything that happens after that is criminal activity. So things continued to happen, of course. First place, a lot of criminal activity was going on in addition to the actual combat with these belligerents. Then there were various religious fanatics they dealt with. I don't know what in the world the Cabana Tawan people were, but they were in the middle of central, I mean, there's 7,000 islands out there, and they were in the Visayans, in the middle of Visayans, and it was sort of a mixture of Christianity, animism, or whatever, but at any rate, they had to deal with those people. Then, of course, they ran into the Moros, the Moros were waiting for them, just like the Moros are waiting for our special forces people, right? Now, the Moros fight, that's what they do, and so we dealt with them at great length, and cost of casualties and so on. Suicide people, there are mentados who would get all drugged up and then come at you with a Cree or, you know, crook, long crooked knife and cut your head off. <clears throat> it's very disturbing because you could shoot the standard issue weapon at them then and they'd keep on coming. One guy actually fell dead at the foot of the guy who was after and the guy had fired five rounds and he looked at him and he could put his hand over the rounds on the guy's heart. They kept coming. The 45 effectively stopped them. I mean, the, the 45, which I understand the guys in Iraq like to use now, which I can appreciate. I never did side a barn with it, but it's certainly intimidating. And if you're close enough, it'll blow the guy back to the room. Um, World War One, of course, was the first major test of the root reforms. And it was a quickie in a way. We were in the war 18, 19 months, and combat, heavy combat for American troops was around five or six months. But the Army expanded from around 125,000 people to uh, 3,750,000. About half of that number, a little bit more than that, actually went to France and fought in the AEF. And they had to develop the, can the commanders, train these people, provide the logistics, and they did it. And for the first time, the general staff really functioned very effectively and efficiently under Peyton C. March, who is sort of special in, to me. I wrote a book about him. After the demobilization of the Army, <clears throat> when I was writing this book on March, as it turned out, having chance is really wild. The first man, first veteran of World War I elected to Congress. The guy was still on active duty in the election of 1918. They elected him to Congress. War ends a week later. So he goes to Congress as a captain, just got out of the Army. Lived about four houses down from me when I was a graduate student. So one day I went over and talked to him. And I was asking him, what was the situation in that Congress of 19? 191920 that he was in. And as he put it, Congress had a belly full of the damn army. And so their purpose was to cut it. And there was hostility with the National Guard. Uh, the commander of the National Guard Association said, we're going to destroy the regular army. And some of the regular army people said, we're going to destroy the National Guard, but that's another story. So after the demobilization, there was a, a major issues, all sorts of issues, some of them I'll go into. But a key point was universal military training. 
World War I had really been the first major effective draft. Where the there had been the draft since the Revolutionary War, but that was the first major one. And after the war, some people pointed out we should have a formal universal military training, able-bodied males serve one, two years, whatever. And uh, that naturally didn't go through, given the attitude of Congress. So finally, they came up with a system where they'd have around a quarter, an army of a quarter million. Congress authorized a regular army of 250,000. Well, actually, they authorized that, but they put up money for an army of about 120,000. As a matter of fact, I've got a quote here. Yes, in 1923, the Secretary of War pointed out that Americans spent six times, six times as much annually on soda and confections than on military purposes. So we see where the basic interest was. Belts really had to be tightened in this period. George C. Marshall said the cuts, the cuts, and the cuts came. Actually, throughout the 20s and 30s, the average strength of the Army was around 140 Thousand, which when MacArthur was chief of staff in the early 30s may, meant that the Army ranked 17th in strength among armies of the world, smaller than the Army of Belgium and the Army of Portugal. By 1939, we were 18th in the strength of the world. So it's not a very big army, to put it least. And the budget was really tight. How tight? At Fort Huachuca, a man who later became very famous, uh, Jim Gavin, jumping Jim Gavin, 82nd Airborne Commander when he was 37 years old in uh, Europe. <coughs> Gavin told me, he was lieutenant in the regiment, <clears throat> and he described just how tight the budget was. Soldiers were allowed to use three sheets of toilet paper a day. That was it. Barracks would have two 40-watt bulbs, and they had to turn those off during the day. So things were pretty tight. Now, since World War II was, after all, known as the war to end all wars, which, of course, is a great book title if you stop and think about it, uh, many of the officers, people you wouldn't think likely to do that, thought about resigning. What future? There's not going to be any more wars. Among them, big surprise, Douglas MacArthur. Can anyone picture Douglas MacArthur as a civilian? He got an offer to be, and I've never seen this anywhere else, but I'm one of the two historians who had an interview with MacArthur, and he told me this. I asked him, what did you do after the war? And he said, well, I thought about resigning because Averill Harriman's father, E.H. Harriman, offered me the vice presidency of a railroad. And at that point, I was a young brigadier general, and it looked like I was going to be busted, as most of those people were after the war, back to my regular rank, which was major, and I just couldn't do that. So I was ready to go, and then they surprised me. They put me on the flag officer list, so he stayed in. But other people like William H. Simpson, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of William H. Simpson, but William H. Simpson, by some people, say like Forrest Pogue is one, was considered the best army commander in Europe. Now, when you think of American army commanders in Europe, who do you think of? Patton? Mark Clark? William H. Simpson? Ninth Army. It was his army that was in 50 miles of uh, Berlin when the war ended. Simpson thought about resigning, and in fact even took leave for three months and worked in a business to see what it would be like and decided, I'd rather be in the Army than go through this. The other point about the 20s and 30s <clears throat> is despite the fact that those of you who studied American military history know the war is usually treated as the war, just one war after another at 20 or 30 year intervals. But actually, a lot was going on between those wars, say like the Indians. So even though hostilities was not going on 90, 100% of the time, still, guys out on the frontier in these little godforsaken place, posts they built themselves, 
with, you know, the average post would have 100 to 75 people at. As a matter of fact, I think at the turn of the century, 1900, the biggest post in the Army was 1500. So, tiny little place. And if the Indians gave you trouble, you were in big trouble. And they were patrolling, acting as constabulary. Traditionally, the Army was a frontier constabulary until the root reforms. <clears throat> and then after that, when the Indian Wars are over, and the last Indian battle I talk about in my book where guys were killed was in 1898, after the fighting in the Spanish-American War had ended, that in that period you had the insurrection and the various insurgent operation, counterinsurgency operations in the Philippines. And then, of course, you were going to Mexico, the punitive expedition, the Veracruz expedition. Uh, the Mexican border was a Chinese place, and troops were, cavalry was patrolling that up to World War Two, but there wasn't any action down there, except in 1919, a little point of history, we did send a brigade across at El Paso in the Juarez area, and there actually was a cavalry charge. I ran into an old guy in uh, Leavenworth, Kansas, a very distinguished old man, a federal judge, who'd been a sergeant in the 7th Cavalry, who was in that cavalry charge which didn't work out very well. They were going after them with pistols, and they were running. <laughs> the cavalry was riding across a uh, cultivated field, so they were going up and down. I don't know. They probably scared some Mexicans, but I don't know if they really accomplished that much. But the border was quiet. Nothing was happening for that period. However, in the 20s and 30s, the major transformations dealt with technology particularly the airplane and the tank. The development of the originally aeronautical section of the Signal Corps, Air Service, Air Corps, eventually Army Air Force in World War II, and then eventually Air Force, is a fascinating story. And that really takes off in this period, no pun intended. Billy Mitchell is who we remembered. I'm not a great fan of Billy Mitchell's, but there were a lot of people pushing. And, of course, the Air Force dream was war on the cheap, if we can get to the vital centers, the Douay theory, if we can hit the vital centers, then we'll end the war, strategic bombardment. Now, the problem with strategic bombardment, there wasn't an aircraft capable of really doing it until they came off with the proto-model of the B-17 when in 35, I think. But these guys were preaching that. Now, the Army, at that point, the Air Corps was a branch of the Army. The Army really wanted the Air Corps to be a, essentially a support weapon like longer-range artillery. In other words, they believed in tactical air, which the air people didn't. And they were pushing the misnamed tactical air school at, um, in Alabama. Those guys were really talking strategic bombardment. But at any rate, they came up with a theory of warfare that they wanted to go through, and of course we would see what happened to that in World War II. At the same time, they were developing things. I mean, I haven't kept up that well. I'm a historian. I don't keep up things that much. But you know that most of the aircraft we have now have been around a long time. I interviewed a guy who went through flight school in 32, flying fighters, and he told me by the time the war had come, he had flown I've got 10 or 12 different models of fighters. They were developing so fast. As a matter of fact, Paul Tebbets, who lives here in town of the Enola Gay fame, when he went through flight training in 37, he said the plane he flew looked like it was held together with bailing wire. Here's a man who would fly a B-17 and a B-29 within the next eight years. So things happen very fast in the Air Force. The tank didn't fare as well as the Air Force. Like the Air Force, it had been set up as a different branch during World War I. They could do that under executive order. But it was a wartime business. There was a tank corps and there was the air service. <clears throat> However, when the war was over and all of these temporary elements went out in 1920, 
the Army, Congress didn't make the tank corps a separate branch. And then the Army decided to put the tanks in the infantry. Well, you guessed it right off. George Patton goes back to the horse cavalry and spends his time developing a new saber that looks suspiciously like sabers they had in the early 19th century. But he got that adopted and all that. He was a horseman. And tanks were in the infantry. Now, when I say that these people had the tank, that doesn't necessarily mean they did that much with them for a variety of reasons. The basic tank, for example, I talked to one guy and corresponded with another one at some length who had been in a tank regiment, the 66th Infantry at Fort Meade. Um, one of them said right off the point that they were, had the old French Renaults. You've seen pictures of those. You know, the tank with a little turret sticking up, two guys in it, maybe three, and this guy, who was a Polish coal miner from Pennsylvania, 18-year-old kid, went down, and he, I asked him, well, how did this work? How was it going? He said, well, you have to keep in mind, those tanks weren't, in his exact words, worth a damn. They frequently broke down. And, again, budget. They only got enough gasoline to drive around post for, you know, days of inspection or all of that. They didn't really have much money. Their major thing the soldiers did was keep them polished. You know, if nothing else in the Army, whitewash the rocks and put out something and keep the tanks polished. Another guy, <coughs> his friend, told me he joined the unit, and the guy instructing him, he was going to be a tank driver, the guy instructing him took him aside and said, uh, this is a tank, here's you, and the guy said, well, uh, you know, what do I do? He said, drive the damn tank. It's just like a truck except for steering leaders. So Varhol got in the tank and took off with it, but he couldn't find the brake, so he finally stopped it by running into a building. So this is the level of technology in the tanks and the organization. Just as in the case of the air people, although not as ambitious, Tank theorists were beginning to think of breakthroughs, you know, Fuller, Hart, and others, and they began to think of the armor force as a separate force and all that. Adna Shafi, who <coughs> had been famous as a horseman, you know, show horses, polo, the full gamut. And they thought they should be separated, they should be organized into tank regiments. And Douglas MacArthur had something to do with that. The story is MacArthur in his office as chief of staff, called in the chief of cavalry, Gavi Henry, interesting guy. Gavi Henry had grown up in the Army. His father was a cavalry officer, badly wounded at the Battle of the Rosebud in 1876 and all of that. And he called in Henry, West Point, class of 1898. And he was talking to him, and he pointed out the window toward uh, Pennsylvania Avenue at Park Cars. And he said, Henry... That's the future of the cavalry. In other words, automotive um, gas vehicles. And indeed, they started organizing them. And they organized a unit. The first cavalry had to say goodbye to its horses. Those of you who've seen my book see that great picture in there where the cavalry regiment is standing at salute with their sabers as they're taking the horses off. They're saluting the horses. I don't know if the picture is big enough. The original is one of those big fold-out, you know, goes this big. So I couldn't get that on four pages of the book, much less two. So I cut it off, but in the pack are a couple of cars. But that was their future. And they got into that, and they start working it. And, of course, as time went on, shortly before the war, in 40, they formed the armor force. And they started working up plans for armored divisions and all that. Shafi was the first head of armor force, and he was dying of cancer at the time. They promoted him major general. He was running it, but he wasn't around too long. He retired and died a month or so later. Then, interestingly enough, the second head of armor force was, as everyone would expect, not Georgie Patton, but Jakey Devers, Jacob L. Devers, another Army group commander in Europe, but who's ever heard of Jake Devers? They brought him in because he was a real comer. 
he was an artillery officer. And those of you acquainted with the armor, you know the triangle, the yellow, the blue, the red. Red's artillery. Blue's infantry. Yellow's cavalry. So there's going to be a combination. So they brought in Devers. Patton was his assistant, but given the type of guy Georgie was, he immediately started going behind his back, writing letters to the Secretary of War and all that, till Jake Devers, who'd been a classmate of his at West Point, just called him in and confronted him with it and said, you've got to cut this out, George. It's going to be you or me, and it's not going to be me. You're going. So Patton did shut up. He knew enough about that. The old guys, the horse cavalry people, including the last chief of cavalry, Johnny Herr, thought the army was the horse. And as late as the Korean War, I ran it, knew this, an old general was walking along at Johnny Herr, on Connecticut Avenue around where the Hilton, Washington is now. A lot of army guys lived there, retired people. And they were talking about the Korean War, and Johnny Herr said, oh, we could use a regiment of horse cavalry over there. And then he said, they have betrayed the horse. Well, this is 50, 51 or 2. Young guys who loved it, Creighton Abrams, Bruce Palmer, people like that, Polk, James H. Polk, Howes, Hamilton Howes, guys like that, who later became distinguished Army generals. Creighton, some of them flatly said, they loved this, they loved the polo, they loved the whole business, but on the other hand, it was, they became increasingly aware in the late 30s, this isn't where it's going, it's the tank. So these were the guys who would become the battalion commanders, the chiefs of staff of armored divisions, and so on. And some of them would be senior officers in the armored divisions. Meantime, Georgie is going his way. And I remember as an 11-year-old kid seeing a Life magazine. It was very exciting. I'd never heard of George S. Patton. But here was a picture of Patton in an Army football helmet, gold with a black stripe, with a field jacket and everything, with an armor thing. That's not the uniform he designed. Georgie designed a special uniform that was forest green with brass buttons like this. And the Army didn't buy that. And Charlie, my brother-in-law, Charlie's uncle, was a National Guard general, very famous one, uh, Ray McLean, was down at Benning when uh, Georgie was commanding the armor division there. And Patton said, what do you think of this uniform? And Ray McLean said, um, I don't know what to think. <laughs> I don't understand it. And so that went away, but Georgie didn't. And Georgie was very much in people's face from then on. <clears throat> now, one final note, and I'll wind up. Earlier, I talked about the education system root set up. In the 20s and 30s, it really flourished. And it flourished because Army units were not TO units then. I mean, if there's supposed to be 250 guys in a rifle company, they would actually have present for duty in the unit maybe 60 or 70, if that many. And in those days, soldiers mowed the grass. They did everything else. So actually, present for training might be about 10. They didn't really do a lot. In the, they couldn't, except, of course, in the Philippines and in uh, Hawaii, where they had full-strength units. So, in effect, the school system is where it was at. As J. Lawton Collins told me, the school saved the Army. He also told me, and I found this to be true generally, the bright officers, the men who really had a future, the names you would recognize from World War II, they spent the interwar period either teaching, going on staff duty, or going to school, teaching, or being on staff duty. Uh, many of them had no duty with troops between World War I and World War II. Collins, for example, commanded a company in the um, uh, Army of Occupation at Koblenz in 1919-1920. His next tour with troops was as a division commander in 1942. But they were at the schools. And, of course, the most famous schoolman was George C. Marshall and the Marshall men at the infantry school. They were the ones, and Marshall men, Bradley, Stillwell, Charles L. Bolte, a particular favorite of mine, 
and a guy who's really a character, and I might wind up with him because he deals with one of the problems of the Army in that period, Buck Lanham. Um, but at these schools, as Simpson pointed out, who was not only went through the school system but taught at the War College, he said what the schools taught us was to deal with numbers far beyond. I mean, these guys would be captains, majors at the War College, maybe a lieutenant colonel or two, but it's lower rank than they do now. And they were talking about corps, field armies, and that sort of thing. And they were making plans. Henry Gold published a book a couple of years ago, The Road to Rainbow, where he went through the plans they came up with. They were already talking about a two-front war, uh, in case of a two-front war, you'll fight Germany first and all that in the 30s. They had all that laid out. They'd studied it. So the schools really served a purpose. And these guys who in 1939, as a matter of fact, General Bolte told me, he was a um, promoted lieutenant colonel in something like 40, and he was under general staff at the time. And he and another guy were just chatting, you know, and they said, you know, according to standard practices, according to the way the Army is going, remember... The West Point class of 1917 remained lieutenants 17 years. And other, other ranks were sort of frozen in whatever they were. If you got a majority, you were there a very long time, and so on. Because retirement was 62 or 40 years service, which will create a problem I'll go into very shortly. But one of the problems was things were just frozen. Well, at any rate, General Bolte's talking to this guy. I think it was Dahlquist. And they were talking, well, when will we make colonel? At this rate, in our age, and so on. So they worked it out, and they said, well, this is 40. We should make colonel if everything works out in 1956 and then retire a year or two later. They were both major generals within two years. So that's what happened in World War II. And, of course, the great mobilization would take place. But before I go into that, I want to tell the one story of Buck Lanham. He's a fascinating guy. I don't know how many of you ever heard of Charles T. Lanham, but Charles T. Lanham, among other things, was a poet who was publishing in Harper's Magazine when he was an infantry lieutenant, a very bright guy, and later commanded the 22nd Infantry Regiment in the Hurtkin Forest that helped clear the forest at the end and played a significant part in that. And Ernest Hemingway traveled with him as a war correspondent, and he was Hemingway's hero. As a matter of fact, if you've ever read Across the River and Into the Trees, the colonel there's model on Buck Lanham. Buck Lanham told the story when he graduated in West Point, 23 or 24, I forget which, he went to a, one of the postage stamp posts where they were putting infantry regiments, these artillery posts, and they were, you know, putting a battalion here, battalion there, what have you. And he went to one of these little posts and reported Sam Brown belt, sword, white gloves, came in, reported to the colonel, and the colonel looked at him and said, uh, I know what you've heard about me. Lanham <laughs> looked at him and said, Sir, I haven't heard anything of it. You don't have to tell me that. I, I know what people have told you. And he reached in his desk, pulled out a couple of, read this. So Lanham read it, and there were letters from two doctors certifying that he was sane. Lanham said he'd been in that regiment at that post a month before he realized those doctors had made one hell of a mistake. But here was an old guy just hanging on. Well, in 1939, the war in Europe began, and the Army knew what was going to happen. They knew it was just down. So they started their planning. The draft went into effect, and I've got figures here if I can find them in these things. Uh, the Army had reached the strength of around 170,000 at that point, and within about, hmm, about close to two years, I guess it was, it was up, it had increased about 10 times to 1.650 million, and the budget went up from 500 million to 3.7 billion. And of course, before the end of World War II, there would be 8 million people in the Army. And, of course, these guys who had been lieutenants, Captain Wedemeyer, 
had been a lieutenant to 1936. He'd be a three-star, a key planner as a general. In the early days of the war, would go out to China and be a three-star. Eisenhower, of course, uh, was a lieutenant colonel up until 40, and then he got promoted to colonel, and then, of course, he got his BG and made his first thing in the newspapers. This was picked up after the Louisiana maneuvers. It was picked up that um, Brigadier um, Colonel... Uh, Dwight D. Erson being has been promoted to general. So he's going to be a five-star general within four or five years. So these people really shot up. And, of course, the Air Force did its thing. Now, the rest of my book and a considerable part of it was social. I talk about what it was like to be an officer. Who were they? Why were they in the Army? What did they actually do day to day? Same thing for soldiers and their families. I sent out, I don't know how many, a question. I eventually got 322 back from people, enlisted men, wives, children. I interviewed something like 80 people, many of them officers, and so on. What was it like? What did you actually do? What do you think about it now? And that sort of thing. So a lot of it is that element. It's a holistic type approach. But I'll close now and answer any questions you might have. Yes. Very much so. Uh, the Industrial War College was established in this period, and they did have contacts with them. And I know Collins tells in his book, and he talked to me a little about it, um, that he was on the War Department list, and it was one thing as it turned out they didn't have enough people, uh, or they had too many. So it, there was a year lag, and they didn't know what to do with him, so they put him in the Industrial War College. So he spent a year, and they'd go around and visit industries and things of that sort and talk to business leaders and all that. So they had this contact. Bernard Baruch, um, I don't know how many people know who Baruch was, but Baruch was one powerful guy. He was the czar of industry in World War I. Baruch wanted to make sure that Army officers had related to these people and knew them. And, of course, Brooks a very wealthy guy, as well as a guy with a lot of clot, and he saw to that and helped encourage this to go on. But, yes, they did have contacts with them. And, of course, the people in the Air Force had a great deal of contact with the people making the airplanes. Any other questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It's an excellent book. I know that, and I really think it's the best book I've read, really, on the Hurtgen. Yes. He was a real character. <laughs> yeah, he'd been a sergeant, hadn't he, for years? What's he doing now, as a matter of fact? Really? Mm. Yeah, I'd never met him, and I'd never heard of him when the book came across, and I started reading it, and it's a superb study. Really? Yeah. Mark? Well... The wives throughout, and I got into this with the old army going back, you know, to the 1780s. But at one point, I'm across this one woman whose husband actually left her in command of the post. Back in the 40s or early 50s, her husband was, you know, this is one of those little godforsaken places out in the middle of nowhere with 75 troopers. And this guy was going out on a lengthy action and leaving about 15 or 20 troopers there and a sergeant. And so he turned over the keys to the arsenal and all of that and told the sergeant, take your orders from Mrs. Lane. And um, these women 
for one thing, from my standpoint, they were the bulwarks. I mean, they were really with the guy. They went through all of this, and depending, some were very ambitious. There's one story. I never could track that down, so I didn't use it. But um, those of you who dealt, I don't even know what they use anymore. When I was in the Army, you know, we had a standard telephone switchboard they used. I was in the Army in the Korean War period. That had been invented by a man named Parker Hitt, who uh, was a Signal Corps officer. And actually, one of the guys told me, you know, Hitt's wife invented that. He really wasn't one of the sharpest tools in the box, but she invented it. And, of course, he was the colonel, and he got credit for it and was promoted accordingly. So the women were very much around. And uh, that was a fascinating part of the story, not only them, but the children who grew up in it. And uh, most of them loved it. Some of them didn't, but most of them did. And some of the stories they told and... Some of the bizarre things you'd get into, one of the funniest incidents, there was this one guy who was the most decorated man of the West Point class of 1915, the class the stars fell on. His father was an Army officer. And when uh, Sidney was about seven, his father was at Kandon in northern Luzon. And he had a detail, I forget, 8th Infantry, I think, Infantry Regiment, and he had a company or something up there. And he had his wife and two or three kids. And he had a governess for the children. And they're living in this native village. And uh, the insurrectos hit it one night. And the firing was going on. And Sidney turned to his father and said, Daddy, they wouldn't shoot women and children, would they? And, of course, they didn't as a rule. He later went on, was the most decorated man, got two distinguished service crosses in World War I, then left the Army. As he said, I'd seen enough of the peacetime army growing up. But, uh, no, they were very much a part of it, too. And guys would take them. Sometimes they'd take them on combat patrols in Indian country. And in this period, I run into guys who would go out on maneuvers, you know, with their dads. I think John Eisenhower did with Ike over in the Philippines and stuff like that. They'd carry along the boy. They didn't carry the girls in those days, but they, the boy would go with them. Sometimes take them on the firing range, and they'd whatever you do, don't hang around the barracks. All the kids would go straight to the barracks. And the soldiers, you know, they were the children of the company and all that. It's a great story, really, about those people. One thing I deal with at some length is blacks in the Army. That's a fascinating story because there were those four regiments, the 24th, 25th Infantry, and 9th and 10th Cavalry. And uh, they were crackerjack units. And uh, increasingly, they had been high on the totem pole in the Spanish War and the insurrection. In fact, one general said the best regiment over there is the 24th Infantry. Um, and I knew a guy, <laughs> my best source, was in the 24th Infantry throughout that period. Um, I met that man when I was four years old and kept up with him through gradually to be 96, and I was 33 or 4, and I interviewed him extensively. His pictures in both of my books, Mansfield, Robinson, Grand Old Man. But I talked to these people about life in these units, and uh, some of the best sources I had, one was a black cavalry trooper who uh, from Lexington, Kentucky, who had been on the Mexican border in 1912, 13, along in there, and then came back and was in West Point, had a black cavalry detachment of 100 soldiers, and these were picked guys, and that was permanent duty. I mean, once you got in that, like Banks went to it in 1916, and he was there until World War II came along, till 42, however many years that is, 26 years or so. Then he went in, they had put him in a cadre, and he went out as a sergeant somewhere else. But this guy would give me great detail things. He'd talk about race relations. He'd talk about life on the post and all of that. And in my book, there's a picture of him with an all-black polo team in their polo whites. And some of the stories they tell is great. Also, um, I talked with the first black general, Benjamin O. Davis, and his son, young Ben, Davis of Tuskegee Airmen fame, and the, um, the daughter, uh, young Ben's sister, and the stories they tell. In 1939, there were 12,000 officers in the Army. Five of them were black. Three were chaplains. Two were line officers. 
Benjamin Davis Sr. was a colonel of cavalry. Benjamin Davis Jr., graduate of West Point, only black graduate between 1889 and 1942, I think it was. He was in the class of 36. He was in the infantry. They were the two black line officers in the Army and very good soldiers. And their view of it, Stuart, I know when I was interviewing young Ben Davis, as we closed down, I'd take the term, the, turned off the tape recorder and all that. Um, he was leaving the room and he turned around and said to me, did you see Bugles on the afternoon the other night on TV? And I said, no, sir, but I had seen it. As a matter of fact, when I was in the 7th Cavalry, they marched the whole regiment down, and we watched it out in Japan. And I said, yes, sir, I saw it, but some years ago. And he said, you know, I love that Army. I really love the Army. They were soldiers then. You told them what to do, they did it. And said, now, there wasn't any of this persuasion business or consulting. They just did it. And I thought that was very interesting because he and his dad, the only two, I mean, they really suffered. Right? You know, he was silenced the four years he was at West Point and everything. It was an interesting comment. Yes? That's a great question. I'd have to do some thinking. One of them, and he's known within, you might, have you ever heard of John Macaulay Palmer? John Macaulay Palmer, as a fellow who knew him, Persian secretary, said was a school professor type. We all know what they're like. And uh, Palmer was a West Pointer. He was the uh, grandson of a Civil War general, John M. Palmer. And Palmer is a guy, he was an infantry officer, he was one of the foremost proponents of the UMT, Universal Military Training. And his ideal was the Swiss Army. And that gives you pause if you're thinking realistically of trying to model an army of the United States on something Switzerland has. How many wars has Switzerland been engaged in lately, say in the last 400 years? Zippo. How many wars are they likely to be engaged in the next 400 years? Zippo. So there are problems with his planning, but he was very influential. He was uh, uh, Pershing's operations, G3, initially, during the war. Then they gave him a brigade, and he didn't do so well at that. But then after the war... Uh, he was a close advisor to the Senate Military Affairs Chairman and Reorganization of the Army, close advisor to Pershing. And then in World War II, Marshall, who knew him, Marshall had been Pershing's aide and all that, knew him, called him back to active duty. So here's a guy, West Point class of 1890 or something, comes back to office duty, official active duty, assigned to a cubicle in the Library of Congress to plan for the post-war Army. And he's back working on that. And if I give you about three seconds, you can guess what he recommends. Universal military training, of course. But he was, he was very influential. He was a counterweight to Emory Upton, you know, who came in with a very strong regulars, forget civilian soldiers, you know, this has to be a professional thing. He was a counterweight to that for many years. Bill Holly wrote a book about him. It's essentially... Palmer's memoir, because Palmer wrote quite a bit. Very interesting man, wrote history, a biography of Von Steuben, uh, Washington, Lincoln, and Wilson about military thought throughout the period. He was an interesting guy. Um, it's a um, tricky question. I've known guys I was impressed, and you'll sometimes talk to people. When I started on this, and I did this for selfish reasons, I'm a strong believer in oral history, not just to get information, which in itself is interesting, very, I mean, that's why you're there, but also even if you can spend just a 
few minutes or an hour with one of these people, that's something, you know, to sit down and talk to them, get a feel for them. They're old men. They're not in power anymore. But they can, you know, give you some idea of what they were like, and they can give you a great deal of personal information. I mean, uh, guys would tell you, you know, so-and-so was so-and-so's brother-in-law. How would I know that, <laughs> you know? Or uh, what sort of guy was... Um, James Totten like or someone like that and they'll tell you well he was a very quiet like that fellow Palmer was a very school professor type of guy you know they'll give you insight and personality and characteristics now you're not going there I want to tell you what were you, you doing at 4 a.m. on May 4th 1918 that you know they don't know that but if you get into place it they will but one of the things that when I started the regulars I thought I would do is I would talk to World War II generals because I figured some of these people were household names on the cover of Life magazine, Time, and all that at the time, and now most of them are forgotten. And even by the time I was doing this, which fortunately was the 70s when I could get in touch with a lot of people who'd been in this Army, but I went around and talked to a lot of those people. And that was very interesting because what I would talk to them about was the early period of the life. Why did you go to West Point? Why did you go in the Army? Why did you stay in? What was it like? McAuliff once told me he was thinking about transferring. He'd been in the artillery, and he was thinking about transferring to McAuliffe, you know, nuts at Bastogne, McAuliffe, commanded the 101st Airborne. And he said that he was out in, the, in Hawaii. He'd been a lieutenant. He was one of those guys caught up, class of 1919, was a lieutenant for 17 years. He said, really, it got to the point that if I had to administer another gunner's exam, I would go out of my mind. And Devers took him aside, and he was thinking about, I'll transfer to the infantry. I'll try to get in the Air Corps. Just, I want to stay in the Army, but just get out of this. And Devers told him that's a big mistake because things are going to happen, and that's your particular thing. So it was interesting talking to these guys and finding out what happened to them between the wars and when they were essentially unknowns, just going along, by the time the war began, they were captains or majors and so on. So that, that was an interesting experience. Yes? It was institutionalized in that uh, they did have attaches. They were getting reports from that. And uh, they had people, I mean, sometimes it's <laughs> They had people, for example, Maxwell Taylor was sent to Japan to be a Japanese language specialist and spent a couple of years. Now, how much time did Maxwell D. Taylor spend in the Pacific in World War II? Zippo. He commanded the... 101st when it went into Normandy <laughs> over there. So that happened. But they also, one of the most interesting things to me, and I talked to Albert Wedemeyer at some, to some extent on this, some of these guys were sent to the Kriegs Academy in Germany, and they really got a feel of what was going on, and they understood very well what was going on. His seatmate at the Kriegs Academy was Stauffenberg, who planted the bomb on Hitler. So they were friends. He knew him. He was there with him for two years. All the, on the other hand, how much attention was paid to it, in many cases, these guys would come back, and they'd just say, okay, you're going to the 17th Infantry as a battalion commander or something, and that's it. When Wedemeyer came back, Marshall was, I don't think he was chief of staff then, I think he was probably deputy or something, Marshall called him in and talked to him for two or three hours, and he never forgot him and later made him one of his key planning officers. At the same time, Germans were over here. Um, God, I can't think of his name. The guy who was the operations officer of uh, headquarters of the Army. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. But he came over. The, uh, the Germans were sending him to Army War College. And he got over here. And they said, we can't put you in the Army War College. You're not cleared <laughs> for secret. So I tell you what, we will send you around the country and you'll spend 
you know, a month here, a month there, a different post. He was an artillery officer, so they sent him quite a bit to, to sell. I think he spent two months there. And you can give lectures at the Army War College. And it blew my mind, Varlamont. Anybody ever heard of him? W-A-R-L-I-M-O-N-T, Varlamont. Varlamont visited Benning and spent the night with Colonel Marshall. And then there was a guy. Has anybody read Anders' book on Forrest Harding? Forrest Harding, uh, talking about famous guys who never... Forrest Harding commanded the 32nd Division at Buna and was relieved uh, when uh, actually they gave him the ultimatum, either clean house, get rid of your uh, regimental commanders and all that, or you're going, and he refused to do that, so they relieved him. But Marshall knew him and liked him a lot. He, had, he was an Army intellectual in the inner period, uh, edited the Infantry Journal and so on, and... Lanham was sort of his protege. Lanham was a much younger guy. Forrest Harding became very close to a German officer who was at the infantry school through this period. So they, they were very close to each other. And after the war, naturally, they got together. I mean, they were comparing notes. So, yes, there was this type of thing. And, but a lot of the attaches were sort of out of the beaten track, like Femonville, the guy in uh, Russia. I don't know how much people paid attention to him, and they began to think, he must be a red. Well, he spent four or five years, you know, in Moscow. Uh, obviously, he was passing on stuff he learned there. How much they picked up on this, I don't really know. Because those of you, I assume many of you have been in the service and everything, in the old days, and it's probably like that now, intelligence people were on the low end of the totem pole. You know, when they set up organization of the G's, the uh, uh, top-level G's, the major generals, the guy in charge of intelligence, the colonel, or brigadier general, G2. And so I don't really know how much attention they really paid to them. But the information was there. Yes? Well, the Army had a good gun. They'd, a lot of that took place before the war. You know, I mean, before World War One, as far as the guns, howitzers, and that sort of thing. Uh, the Army had a good gun, the three, uh, uh, the gun they had, three-incher. Uh, they used the French 75 because the French had a lot of them and they were difficult to take over. As a matter of fact, I spent a week at West Point in the summer of 41, and I'll never forget watching cadets. This is June 41 doing crew drill on World War I French 75. So the biggest development in artillery, and I go into this in my book, and it's a fascinating story, is the time on target. You know, the Germans, by and large, didn't seem that overly impressed by the Americans, uh, but... They were impressed by the way we could uh, concentrate fire rapidly. And that was developed at uh, Fort Sill by the artillery school in the late 20s and early 30s. And a key guy involved was Carlos Brewer, who had an unfortunate thing happen to him. But at any rate, they were able to just pull these people together. And, of course, it's really essentially a development of the Fire Direction Center, the FDC, and of communications, of having good communications, having forward observers, give them information, pick a target, and whammo, you can concentrate everybody on it, which the Germans were awed by this. And I've talked to people in World War II. I remember a friend of mine was a dog face in, uh, I think it's the 85th Division, 87th. At any rate, he was telling about, it was a quiet day. They're on this river in the town across from there. And nothing else was going on. They saw a couple of German soldiers through their monoculars, and they finally concentrated fire up to army and just wiped out the town virtually. So they could do this just like that. And that amazed everybody. And Carlos Brewer was a key person in that. When the war came along, Brewer, they made him a division commander of one of the armored divisions, which uh, that's... I remember him. He went to my church in Hopkinsville. The division was organized and developing at Fort Campbell. And uh, the division didn't pass its overseas tests. So Brewer loses his stars. And then he does get to uh, France in, um, uh, as a colonel commanding an artillery group. And you people at Ohio State should know, after the war, 
in 48, he was the PMS here, and I think he died here. He lived on after retirement because I was in Pershing Rifles and at Kentucky, and we were the Ohio State contingent was our heavy competitors, and they had a drill meet here. And I got one of those big pictures of everybody and looked, and then that's Carlos Brewer. So he retired here, Colonel Carlos Brewer. Someone ought to do something with him. But I don't know if there are any papers or anything. I was talking to his daughter-in-law, but she didn't know anything about stuff. She said, well, there were some letters from Eisenhower to him, but she didn't know what happened to him. So I don't know. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you.